Can I just say, um, as we get started, that there was so much happening in this episode. It was like a lot to keep yes. track of while taking yes. notes. I found, yes. <laughs> My notes were like weirdly shorter, mostly because I think I was distracted. We're back for another episode of Code Grays. This week we are dealing with episode 22 of season two. There are 27 episodes in this season. It's a really that long is so that? many. I keep thinking we're going to be on the finale and we are still like a month away in real prime time from the finale. Yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy to me. There's so much before we get to like we really get stuff. I mean, do you think it because it's because season 1 was just like a Maybe. Small season. Yeah, they must have been. I mean, they must have been contracted for more episodes. Season one was just shortened by the writer's strike, though. So I don't think that would have anything to do I thought the writer's strike was later mm-hmm. on. No, it was a mid-season pilot. It was a mid-season yeah. pilot. Yeah. Yeah. The ignominious. Ignominious? How do you say that? <laughs> mid-season I don't know that either person. way you pronounce it. <laughs> That's good. Good. Well, you know what? I'm going to insert uh, the Google lady's voice. I bet Andrew would know later. how to spell that word. Yeah. Oh, Andrew. That kid. Uh-uh. All right. Speaking of Andrew, um, season two, episode 22. And we're going to go ahead and go through the rounds. I'm taking rounds duty today because I'm the Christina Yang of this group. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> She's ambitious. That's right. <laughs> and my hair is thick and full of secrets <laughs> <laughs> all right um i will count you down are you feel ready <laughs> do you want 45 sure. seconds or 30 seconds 45 seconds for this episode there's a lot yeah there's a lot you happening. Got okay there's ready? a lot yeah three two one go all right the name of the game is the title of this episode a song by abba and we've got a lot of cases here, including um, the fact that Denny is still dying. Um, let's see. We've got Molly, who's a pregnant woman. She's fine, but her baby has congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Um, we've got Lori Metcalf playing a character named something, but she has cancer and it has metastasized and she's going to die. And she refuses to tell her obnoxious daughter that she's on death's door. Um, we've got Andrew who has a brain tumor and he's also about to compete in the national spelling bee. So that's bad timing. And then we have a lot of storylines between our interns, residents, and the chief of surgery, including O'Malley and Callie. They're a weird thing. Burke and Yang. We're done. That's it. <laughs> this is a busy episode, my friends. It's, okay. it's a busy episode. You should have requested additional Thanks, time. Megan. <laughs> you know now why I did not feel comfortable doing this episode. <laughs> and meanwhile, Patrice was over here like, give that bitch 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she was. <laughs> Fuck that bitch. <laughs> you I appreciate me. Patrice's reverence for the rules. <laughs> There are rules for a reason, guys. I'm the Christina Yay. <laughs> or the April. Ooh, shut up. Mm. Oh, do I not know. call her the April. Ooh, ouch. ouch. I mean, mm. I actually like April. But yeah. <laughs> don't call me the April. We'll Man, then there. fucking call her the April. <laughs> like, <laughs> April needs everyone she can get in her corner. <laughs> that's, no, that's so also, uh, uh, Cancer Mom's name is Beatrice. Beatrice. I think they say I was going to call her Bianca, so I was really close. I think they only say her name one time. Cancer mom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to refer to her as Lori Metcalf going forward. Yeah, yeah. So we open this episode, and per usual, we've got Meredith um, 
<laughs> like giving us a really like painful metaphor. <laughs> so this time she's talking about the games we play. Games we play. Um and she's knitting a sweater. It's because cool. Because why? Why is she knitting the sweater, guys? Because I'm sorry, I'm in teaching Meredith mode. Gray. Why is Meredith knitting the sweater class? <laughs> Professor Rosado, call on me. Celibate. Oh. And like Megan, I make sure you're allowing literally space nobody... for others to speak up. What did you say? Step up. Just being a step back. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I love that nobody believes that Meredith is celibate. Like even Addison is like, really? You? <laughs> and I just like so I you make a whore. That she's That's like the exactly mistress she in that it. situation, but like. Man, that is brutal to have your boyfriend's wife look you in the eye and be like, really? You celibate? (laughs) You're the last person I would have expected to make that choice. (laughs) Right. I mean, Meredith also jokes that she's like, everyone I meet is married. And then she just says, sorry. (laughs) I know. And it's like, it's almost like this is the first semblance of kindness that somebody has expressed toward Addison since like that creepy patient's husband. You know, when Meredith is like, eh? And Addison's like, well, <laughs> and they kind of have this little moment. And Derek is just like, women. What? Yes. W- women be chatting. Women be knitting. Oh um, <laughs> I like that Meredith bookends this episode with incredibly awkward social interactions or non-interactions. So she starts the episode being like, to Addison, all the men I meet seem to be married. Awkward. And ends the episode with her like hot vet asking her a direct question. And because he's hot and she can't handle it, she just starts furiously knitting while looking straight into her lap. And the episode ends without her responding to his question. Can I just take a detour for Finn? Because I legitimately (sighs) forgot that he was in this episode. And when his face came on screen, I think... I think I literally orgasmed. Yeah. Dude, like, oh shit. I, I like, know oh, you Finn. forgot about Finn, but I did not forget about Finn. The second Derek was like, ooh, Doc's not feeling so well, I was like, here comes Finn. And I was so fucking excited. And I just like, so Teresa's like critiquing the the like knitting and Finn's, so Meredith essentially, you know, is, is waiting in the vet's office and Finn is like, let me update you about Doc. And he comes out and everybody has, like, a quiet, tiny orgasm when Finn walks out and Meredith, like, bends down and starts ferociously, like, pretend knitting <laughs> and, and and doesn't answer. And, like, I, I recognize that that's awkward, but I, like, kind of love that she doesn't answer him. She's, like, completely incapable of normal social interactions and, like, watching her out in the wild makes me deeply happy. You know, when it's, like, when she's in a situation that's not a doctor's office, she's, like, totally left to her own devices, which which are zero, you know? Yeah, and she I has like, nothing to fall back on. Just nothing to fall nothing. back on at all. Like a whole bunch of nothing. Yeah. And I just yeah. like, really But now like she's it. got a pile of knitting to I fall know. back on, apparently. But Patrice made this excellent point that, like, she, she looks like, like an alien who read about knitting and then is, like, <laughs> trying knitting for the first time on camera. And everyone's like, this bitch has never knit anything that's not skin. <laughs> it's also like for her first project to be a sweater that's very ambitious i remember i taught myself how to knit in college and i knit a washcloth 
like a three by three washcloth. And that was a lot. I set out to make a, make a scarf and ended up with a washcloth. So, like, <laughs> too ambitious. I too ambitious. have never even tried knitting because I lack any ambition whatsoever. So. I'll also say I wasn't celibate at the time. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Imagine so. having sex and knitting. How did it's you make impossible. Time? It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Knitting rubber according to the people that you want to have sex According with. to this episode, it's physically impossible. <laughs> so so that's that's where we no, start. No, but that look that they share is like pretty magical. It is pretty magical. Like that look that when Finn looks at her, I think that he has like, I have this theory that like no doctors are attractive or as attractive as like the Seattle Grace doctors. And like, and they are exceptionally attractive. And like- Finn is a good-looking guy. I don't think he's, like, on the same level as maybe a Mark Sloan or, like, a, you know, Derek Shepard or something like that. But he's, like, the equivalent for vets. Like, I don't know if you all have pe- I know Teresa and I, pe- I don't know if you have pets, Patrice, but, like, I've interacted with a lot of vets in the last few years, and none of them are attractive. Love them. Love them. They are not Finn. They're not Chris O'Donnell's. Okay. Yeah. No. So I have this idea that there's like this sliding scale of attractiveness <laughs> when it comes to professionals. Yeah. And like Finn is to vets as Derek is to neurosurgeons. Yes. I think that's correct. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. You guys I that? really buy it. I'm into that. I definitely Absolutely. Buy it. I've met one neurosurgeon in my life and he was really odd and didn't tie his shoelaces. So not a Derek. Yeah. So not a Derek. Right? Yeah. I know. That's who you're trusting your brain with. That guy. All right. <laughs> but I did, I do think this, this episode did, again, we've talked a lot about anticipation these last few episodes that have, these episodes have been by and large sort of like uneventful for a lot of our characters, but you can feel the like slow roller coaster build of anticipation. And the second Finn walks onto that screen, you were like, yes, shit is about to get. We know what's happening. And <laughs> yeah. And and you have to have a man of, of like a like you have to have Meredith's partner be a certain level of attractive objectively in order to even mentally compete with, with Derek. Derek. Yeah, that's in absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, well, we'll get into this later. I'm gonna save this question. I was gonna ask who's hotter, Finn or Derek. But you know what? Ooh, this storyline is not coming to an end anytime soon. So no, we, we can time. come back to this question. We can really marinate sit with our nethers and decide it could even be a weekly for the next few weeks m&m question mm. of who was hotter in this episode oh i like Derek. that a temporary Ooh, yeah a temporary one we'll just call it the lady bits a, a, a mm. the lady bits <laughs> who's whispering across our lady bits this week <laughs> you know i actually think that that would be we don't have to actually put this in the episode but i actually think that that might be a better iteration of the on-call room for these very sexy dry yeah. episodes yeah that's a great that's a so really good finn point. is whispering across my lady bits too. yeah oh definitely yeah. it's Not definitely that George O'Donnell and callie thing. scene that's what whisper oh, can we okay. talk about this we're opening? getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> okay anyway let's uh let's talk about the opening, the opening. <laughs> the, let's so so let's get into it um we kind of start First of all, there are a number of monologues in this episode. So People many are monologues. talking a lot. They're not breathing normally. And, <laughs> and I was just like, breath control is a thing, folks. And I know these lines were supposed to be delivered in like a frantic, anxious, Shonda Rhimes monologue sort of way. 
But it was like one after another after another. It was a lot. Here's a legitimate question. Have either of you ever monologued to someone in your entire life? Absolutely. (gasps) Yes. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm a teacher specifically so I can just monologue. (laughs) Outside (laughs) of your classroom. Outside (laughs) of your classroom. No, but yes, I do monologue. Okay. Yeah. My, I used to do speech and debate. I monologued about implicit bias. Too. There you go. Ooh. I used to do speech and debate in high school, and my family made fun of me because they said I would talk in five to seven minute increments, <laughs> <laughs> which was like the length of an extemporary, an extemporaneous speech was five to seven minutes. Yeah. So where do we want to start? Do we want to start with our intern storylines, like our our main character storylines? Or should we just, like, go with our patients because they overlap so much with But they overlap the a lot, and I think that's a little bit confusing. And I, I think that the patients are are important, but this is yet another episode that actually focuses a little bit more on our doctors than our yeah. patients. And there's a lot of overlap, right? The doctors aren't exclusively working on, you know, like, they kind of inter intertwine a little bit with each yeah. other. Um, so... I was thinking that maybe we could start with George and Callie. Yeah. Because I think that they 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 actually sort of start us off um with uh wait. Oh no, I just lost my train of thought. With Sorry. the world's worst game night. Yeah. yeah. With Burke and Yang. Oh, the game night. Yes. It's thank painful. you. Thank you. It's really painful. It's bad. It's awful. It is awful. <laughs> and and I think that that sort of nicely ties in with Christina and Burke. So they're playing, what are they playing? Charades? No, they're not playing Which, like, charades. Like they're playing Balderdash um, or uh, yeah, catchphrase? Or... Yeah, it's like catchphrase almost. Celebrity type thing? Yeah, so you draw a name or a word out of a bowl and then you have to you have to give clues as to the name that you pulled out, right? Yeah. That's the game. Oh yeah, we call that celebrity. Celebrity. I yeah, that's that right. sounds right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I just the writers in this in the beginning of this game, they're like really trying to show how in sync George and Callie are and really make them believe that they're a real and viable couple. And like, oh, my God, look at their chemistry. But it's just not believable. No, at all. They have really strong friend chemistry. Yes. Like, oh, my God, look at you guys. Such a cute team. Yes. That's it. Yes. Not a sexual yes. team, just like a literal like no. maybe you guys could play like pairs tennis, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I just feel as though this episode reaffirms what I've been thinking the last few episodes, which is that George is everyone's annoying little brother. Yeah. Who you sometimes really get along with and sometimes really click with and win a game of celebrity with, but ultimately is not <laughs> you don't a have sex, sex interest. With them. Is yeah. <laughs> No, you don't. You don't. That's kind of the rule. You don't. Like I just, you know what I mean? Like I feel like that's that's like consistent with him in terms of his relationship with Meredith, his relationship with Izzy, even the way that he interacts with like Karev and Christina, which is much like you were in Far Between, and and they're like really trying to force this relationship with Callie and George, and I really stand by what we talked about a couple episodes about ago, which is like. They don't really want us to believe in this relationship because if they did, they would write it differently. Yeah. The more I the more you know. I sort of meditate on that note, um, the more I absolutely agree with you. Like I I really think that maybe I was maybe I'm selling the writers short and they know exactly what they're doing with the Callie George relationship because it it's just it's so unconvincing and I I just can't believe in a world where they were going for it to to be appealing to viewers. 
I don't know. I like this theory. And I think that the writers, even if that's not how they interpreted it, I think they, I think they should, they should um, come out and say that that's what they, right. that's what they were doing all those years ago. Well, they to just cover their set up George in the beginning as such a non-romantic partner. You know, like at every turn, he is sort of being thwarted by any sort of romantic advances he's trying to make towards anyone. And so now it sort of seems like they're trying to backtrack that. They're like, no, look, he is desirable. He can be attractive. And you're like, no, but you just spent like a season and a half letting me know that he wasn't. Yeah. Right. Right. Um and I, I, I think that like, so this early scene is sort of like they're, they're like connecting, but again, in my mind, in much more of a sibling way where you connect with your siblings and you're like, oh man, it's like, it's this or it's that. And they kind of like answer that, answer that question together. But uh, uh, Teresa, you actually made, I when I was reading your notes earlier, you made a, a really good point about um, who's all in the room. It's like Callie and Izzy and maybe one other person. And, and, and she's... Callie's trying to say, like, you guys don't see George. Like, you don't see him. Like, he makes my whole world stop. And it's kind of this moment where we're all like, really? <laughs> you know, and like, and like, none of us really believe that, right? Like, I don't, I, and I'm the first one to say, like, I don't really believe that, right? It's really hard to look George O'Malley in the eye and believe that he makes anyone's world do anything at all. Um, but, Teresa, you made the really good point that that Izzy sort of says, like, he's my McDreamy. And, and it's that moment where, like, Izzy doesn't get it either, right? Like, Izzy is with us. And she's like, really, George? And and it's sort of this wonderful moment where, like, oh, okay, this isn't something that we've made up in our, like, viewer heads. It's almost like breaking the third wall, right? It's sort of like this character believes what we believe about this, like, foundational character in the show. And it makes me feel, like, not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought that was, like, really insightful when you, when you pointed that yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just... Oh my God. It just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And then it's contrasted that scene, the game night or whatever. It's contrasted with Burke and Yang who are in this rough patch because George has moved in. Yang is living with Burke and Burke and George continue this really, I would describe as reprehensible friendship. (laughs) It's the buddy comedy that nobody it's wanted. Nobody wanted. Least of all Yang. And um this scene really serves to demonstrate the wide gulf between Burke and Yang. And I think it's like the third episode in a row that has really taken pains to illustrate how different they are, just in terms of their core values and personalities. Christina's super competitive with the game. She's definitely being over the top about it, but also George is fucking annoying, so I get it. And Burke is either trying to rile her up, like trying to provoke her by playing dumb that he doesn't know Madonna is the answer to blonde ambition tour. And I, that's, so that's one option. Option A. I'd like to note that I would not have known that, but she did say Conebra and Voguing. Yeah. Which, that's definitely a dead giveaway. Yeah, she She did the Voguing. And and I love that she just kept repeating, she's ambitious. She's ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. It was just great. So either Burke was playing dumb, or Burke is really quite old, or, (laughs) I don't know. 
but it just it really showcased that they're they're not a good fit and Christina was getting increasingly frustrated and it it set up this kind of showdown that happens later in the episode around the whole trio of this like bizarre threes company situation of Burke Christina Yang and fucking George O'Malley um and you know and I think that's something that's really frustrating to me about it is that like as as somebody who like lives with her partner if my partner invited someone to live in our home that I was uncomfortable with and I expressed that he would listen to me, right? Yeah. Like, that would be a conversation. Like, first of all, he would never invite someone in our home without making it a conversation about, like, who is welcome and not welcome to stay semi-permanently in our home. But, like, it's really frustrating to me that Burke, like, he, he does not listen to her at any turn, right? And, like, he doesn't listen to her as a partner. He doesn't really listen to her as a doctor. He doesn't listen to her as a roommate. And, like, it's no wonder to me that she resorts to needing to weaponize, as you said, weaponize her body in order to get through to him Yeah, because he is completely unwilling to listen to things his partner is asking for in terms of her living situation. And like, I'm somebody who takes my living situation, like probably too personally <laughs> and too like seriously. Um, but I, I, I literally cannot imagine like, this is like my nightmare. Yeah. Right, is having somebody like move into my home without my permission, and in fact, with my like express like lack of consent around it, and she's forced to to like resort to walking around naked around the apartment in order for him to feel threatened enough to not allow George in the house. Like it just completely robs her of a voice, and I, it's actually why I think I feel particularly sensitive around this like game night is that like in the event that he is like playing her that he doesn't know who Madonna is. I'm like, oh great, another opportunity for Burke to like kind of gaslight her. Yes. You know? And it's like really it like really does not sit well with me. And he's like, oh Christina, it's just a game. And it's like, all right, asshole, like you wanted to have this game night. You invited this guy into our home and now I'm acting like I don't even know what you're talking about in front of our friends. And I think I find it like really deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. I would agree. I think that sort of throughout this whole thing that Burke has made it very clear that he's the one in control. He made Christina Mm. give up her apartment. He Mm -hmm. just like refuses to listen at every turn, but also he's the person who gets to make decisions about their living arrangements, even though he asked her to move in and to be a full partner with him, but he's not letting her do that. It's very clear what his values are. You know, he's not, it's clear that he likes Christina for the strong woman that she is, but there's something inside of him that um, probably believes that, you know, maybe that she should be subservient to him or just go along with what he says. Like the moment that Christina let him know in the last episode that she didn't want George in the apartment anymore, that should have been the end of the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, um, Teresa pointed out like that there's like an abundance of red flags in this relationship from very early on. Um, but, but what you're saying, Patrice really resonates with me because I think that like, there is, there are so many red flags and, and, and Burke's shaming of Christina is like deeply uncomfortable to me. Right. Like we shame is like not a, a, a feeling to invoke on someone else. Right. But I think that what really upsets me about it is that, Christina's relationships over and over and over again in the show um, 
shame her for things that her partners already knew about her. Right. So you look at her relationship with Burke and he shames her for being competitive, something that we've all known about Christina from day one. He shames her for not wanting children, something we've known about since day one. Right. None of like she is constantly getting sort of like slash marks against her for things that were never secrets. And I think that that actually um, for me, that that really raises a question about like I guess it confirms how much I believe in her relationship with Meredith because Meredith never once criticizes or shames her for anything she knows or doesn't know. Right. You know, Christina walks in and says to Meredith, like, oh, I, I, I need to have an abortion. I'm, I'm pregnant. And Meredith is like, OK, great. Let's go together. Right. Yeah. Like never once, whether it's something she knows or doesn't know about her very best friend, does she strike against her? Does she shame her? Does he ju- does she judge her for that? And I think that that's like what you should hope for in all close relationships, whether they're friendships or, or like, you know, romantic relationships. And Christina can't find that. Like she literally can't find that in her entire, you know, experience on this show. And like, and, and I think that's really heartbreaking, right? That like everything, everything is, is sort of like a strike against her in like a, a deeply shameful way. And I think that's a really hard thing to watch for a character who is so beloved. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It just, it, I mean, it really, everything you're saying just really um, doubles down on the idea that Yang and Gray are each other's soulmates, right? right. Like, mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. you know, they're dealing with these older, controlling men. And in so many ways, the relationships between Meredith and Derek and Yang and Burke really mirror each other. Um, and I think that, I think, well, I think that the Derek Meredith relationship is less problematic or has the potential to be less problematic. I mean, they're, they're, they really get trapped in these relationships that are repeating the same cycles. And that's really frustrating to see. And so it's nice that Christina's storyline is paired with her, um, sort of competition against the chief in, Mm -hmm. in, you know, the surgical training that they're doing, they're learning, um, you know, uh, what is it? Laparoscopic surgery. Laparoscopic. And, um, and it's fun to watch her in her element. It's it's nice to see her actually working on a surgical skill. <laughs> like having her talents be recognized and appreciated. Um, and it's also nice to see her humbled by the end of the episode when the chief beats her in sort of the final, not competition, because it's literally <laughs> not a competition. It's just like their final review of skills. But it's nice to see her humbled and it's nice to see her... Um, sort of acquiesce to the idea that she's not the greatest yet. Yeah. But you can see the yet, like, flash across right. her she's eyeballs. Like, oh, I can learn something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. even though it's not <laughs> yeah. a competition, Dang. it is a competition between her and the chief. And I like the fact that the chief doesn't scold her for being overly competitive mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. That he sort of sees that she's being competitive and says, hmm, I'm mm-hmm. gonna, I'm gonna try you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then ultimately, yeah. you, I, I super love the scene where the chief is like, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And he's like, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Christina is defeated. And then later on when she realizes that he closed his eyes, he didn't need the technology. Yep. He just owned it. Yep. And that's that memory. piece that you were talking about is that the yet piece. Mm-hmm. Christina thinks in my mind, mm-hmm. oh, when am I going to get to the point where I can close my eyes mm-hmm. and complete a surgery? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, they're they're such a good pair. Like, you know, it's so because the chief at this point in the show has so much clout, right? Like he's the chief and you like know he's the chief and like everybody's like still deeply you know, impressed by him because they're so new in their careers. And so having them be partners in a lab or whatever, you know, is like really really and they're not partners, but having them sort of be, you know, classmates in that setting is like really really wonderful. Um and I think like deeply satisfying because I also think that it gives us a glimpse into Christina's potential yeah right like she can be peers with the chief and we know that and we believe in her in that way um which which I really I really like that and it's kind of the it's kind of the episode of weird but satisfying pairings you know George and Callie aside um we get we get another pairing of uh Karev and Burke that Mm -hmm. I think bears a lot of sort of narrative fruit um yeah you know, you get again, kind of, kind of with the same potential issue with Yang. I feel like these were the two interns who were really demonstrating how seriously they're taking this opportunity. Um, so, you know, Karev at one point is in the operating room with Burke, and you know, he answers one of Burke's questions with great detail, and Burke says, "You know, I can." you're you're really paying attention you know Karev or whatever it is and Karev's like yeah a lot of late nights and it's this really nice reminder that you know Izzy and George aside <laughs> Izzy's knitting a sweater <laughs> that's <laughs> the end of that doctors who who are really really working hard um and we get you know it's not it's not all rainbows and sunshine with Burke and Karev there are some pretty serious clashes in their philosophies with patients and their approach to Laurie Metcalf's character cancer mom but, cancer mom. <laughs> but it's it's still nice to one see Burke teaching and two mm. see Karev actively advocating for himself in his career even though he still needs to work on that uh that polish (laughs) yeah so would would one of you be able to uh or be willing to sort of give us the five second version of what's happening with Lori, um Lori metcalf cancer mom cancer mom cancer mom beatrice carver better known Mm. as (laughs) Lori metcalf (laughs) so beatrice carver slash Lori metcalf slash the mom from ladybird slash lady from roseanne i didn't actually watch that show um so <laughs> but you watched the reboot right no oh, fuck no <laughs> is that our next podcast <laughs> it would just be me saying fuck, fuck this no, shit fuck no fuck um, no so laurie Metcalf, we don't we don't actually meet the character until later we open with burke and alex already operating on her and we learn that her cancer has metastasized it's stuck to her chest wall she is definitely dying um and they can't really do anything but make her comfortable um and she's there with her teen daughter who i don't know who this actress is but she's just like the shittiest teen (laughs) that i've ever seen she's so mean to her mother who's in the hospital uh granted she doesn't know she has cancer but still her mom's in the hospital and she's like she's not just like in the hospital looking like slightly fatigued like no. Lori looks bad. She looks she like she looks death. like a cancer patient. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the fact that the teen didn't guess that the mom had cancer is beyond yeah, me. Yeah, like so the kid is not only like a terrible person, 
but also stupid to the point that she might need some kind of intervention. <laughs> Man, you guys hate so hard on this teen child. It is like, it's like amazing. I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I don't at all fight you on the fact that she's like being kind of shitty. But kind like, of. She thinks you're qualifier. Kind of. I don't know. Literally, man, think... words that come out of her mouth. She enters the room and she's like, "Mom, I'm not eating the shit that's in here. When are we getting <laughs> yeah. out of here?" Jeez, mom, how many doctors do you have? She's like mad that her mom she, yeah, has she's doctors. Mad. I'm like, if your mom has an army of doctors, it's probably a good indication that things are going poorly. <laughs> I don't know. Which like, is like I, uh, I, it's crowded in here. I I think okay I think that that's true all of those things are true yes like she is being shitty to her mom she's being like an obtuse teenager with two earbuds in and zero ears out right like she's on her phone and she's calling you know the food shitty and the doctor shitty and her mom shitty but like I, I I don't I don't mean to justify her behavior but I also think that like she very clearly has a has a deep relationship with her mom to me right and I think that like Teenagers are very, very selfish. And I think she is being very selfish. Um, and that that doesn't make it okay, but that's not all that surprising to me. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think that, I, like, I work with teenagers every day and, like, I don't, most teenagers are not that shitty. But I think that they're often so selfish and so single-minded because of the giant hole where their frontal lobe be- belongs <laughs> that is, like, yet to fulfill itself that they, like, they see it and they're like, the food is shitty and I'm going to let everyone know that I think the food is shitty. <laughs> and like, that's not really like a fully formed thought, right? Like she clearly sees that her mom is in the hospital, right? Like that's, in my opinion, like that's not lost on her, but she's like, her whole world exists in the, exists exclusively in herself. And I think that like the the moment when her mom, like the moment when we know Lori's not going to live and she's going to have to have this interaction with her daughter who's being like you know objectively pretty shitty you see the daughter turn and recognize that like part of the reason she's being shitty is because she loves her mom so much right and she feels so comfortable around her mother to say things like how many fucking doctors do you have mom right and her mom's like "Eh, whatever it's a lot and her mom's trying to like protect that right she is allowing her daughter to be shitty because she's so sick Right. Like she is not willing to like pick that battle because she does not want her like lasting memories with her daughter to be like, oh, if you were just a little bit nicer, if you just like gave your, you know, the doctors or me a little bit more patience, like, you know, like I think that like the illness is clouding a lot of this and she's allowing her daughter so much more latitude than maybe she normally would because she wants to preserve that close relationship. And I, I, and I think that like, what we see in that moment where she has to like come to Jesus with her daughter and be like, listen, I'm dying. You know, she really, the daughter sort of snaps into focus very, very quickly for her. And I think that like, it's almost more believable to me in that way. I don't know. I think there's a, I, I get think that there's certainly, shitty, but. I think there's a certainly a point to be made that like, you don't see what you don't want to see. Right. Like mm-hmm. it truly is like, she would have to be tremendously stupid to not know. <laughs> That her mom is very ill. And so, (laughs) barring some sort of delay, she's aware that her mom is sick and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to acknowledge how sick she is and her mom isn't forcing her to acknowledge how sick she is 
So if she continues to just be her bratty teenage self, then neither of them, neither of them have to name the unnameable. Mm. And I can, yeah. I can create or allow space for that interpretation of her character. For sure. I do see that. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a tough battle. I think that it all culminates in one of the better scenes in Grey's Anatomy, Ugh. which is the scene when the mother doesn't necessarily come outright and say that she's dying, but starts mm-hmm. giving her daughter advice on what to do next year. You're going to want to make sure that you're taking two AP classes every semester. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, she starts talking about going off to college. She talks, she starts talking about, you know, your aunt Julie or whatever isn't much for personal hygiene, so you're ne- going to need to schedule your own eyebrow waxing, which I was like, okay, Lori Metcalf, you bitch, what the fuck? What does eyebrow waxing have to do with personal hygiene? <laughs> That's, okay, I'm getting off track. But she gives her a lot of other advice, and then she kind of moves into the stepmom territory of, like, when you yes. get married, etc. when you have children, you're going to understand that all you want is for your child to be happy. That's all that you want. And the daughter just There's goes, nothing else Mom, why are you telling me this yeah, yeah. single tear Single tear. <laughs> single um, tear. Cue, like, us with just a cascade down our face. I'm, I, I remember watching this episode. And crying. And crying. Yeah. Like, full-on family oh, stone yeah. stepmom crying. Yes. Um, well, and, and, and Teresa, I gotta say that, like, I think that I misremembered this scene because I had conflated it with stepmom in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I had remembered it as being a little bit, and it's a hard scene to watch. Like it is a devastating scene to watch, but I think that I had conflated it with Susan Sarandon in stepmom in that yeah. scene that she has with her daughter. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I read that in your, in your notes of the episode, I was like, man, like, it is not surprising to me that, like, when I watch Stepmom, like, uh, that movie wrecks me. Yeah. You know? It's a different and, and level of devastation. I mean, when truly. Susan Sarandon says to Julia Roberts out loud over this, like, stiff dinner they're having. I have their past. And you can have their future. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like, All right. What the sobbing no okay just to remind Don't everybody this is a Grey's anatomy podcast and not a stepmom no we're podcast. switching now it's, <laughs> it's all episodes stepmom. about stepmom now oh my god no then i'm out guys i'm <laughs> out i'm tapping out i we can't talk about podcast, stepmom podcast for an hour we talk every about week all of the dying mom movies oh that we my love god so intensely families i'm there i'm there i'm there <laughs> so anyway i yes so i think that the storyline um while not as devastating as stepmom, is still really heartbreaking. And Lori is so great in the role of cancer mom. And the daughter actually really holds her own, I think, in the scenes. I think she does a nice job. And um, it's it's one of it's. It's one of the better storylines, like patient storylines, that I think we've had in a couple of episodes. For me, like patients have been yeah. fairly uninteresting to me in the last two episodes, and, and this you're one, not emotionally this invested. one, like I saw her and was like, "Oh my god, that's right." This storyline, this patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lori, totally I mean, agree. she has two great monologues because she also monologues to Karev when she talks about, you know, when you have a child. I think he asked her, "Why are you letting her be so shitty to you?" 
uh, yeah. her daughter, that is. And she says, when you have a child, you'll do anything for them, basically. And yeah. she talks about smelling the top of their heads when they're newborns. Mm. And they sealed that final monologue with her smelling her teen's head. And it was like, oh, my God. Oh, fuck that scene. Yeah. I know, right? And uh-huh. so then the, but the other side of Laurie Metcalf's storyline is Alex and yeah. Burke still. Mm-hmm. And basically Burke just telling Alex over and over again that he has bad bedside manner, that he's being inappropriate with how he's talking to um, Beatrice, Laurie Metcalf's character, mm-hmm. and that he really needs to... Um, like dial it back a little bit and show yeah. show some empathy and Alex you know flies off the rail yeah. and does his monologue towards Bert yeah. and, and basically says probably what he's been feeling the whole time is like all of you other doctors are living in la la land mm. and I'm out, I'm out here like spilling the tea and telling the truth mm-hmm. to patients um, mm-hmm. and I think that while Alex doesn't necessarily present the truth to the patients in the right way. He doesn't always have tact and sometimes he's an asshole about it. He has the empathy and he is telling them, you know, I mean, what they need to know. He's not painting a rosy picture. He's, he's being a good doctor and saying like, these are the realistic things that might happen to you. Um, Yeah. And I I just feel like people take for granted the fact that Alex is honest and that he's trying to, trying to give the patients just, you know, the best odds for, um, for coming out on the other side, I think, you know, he's not going to say you're definitely going to get through this. And then, you know, maybe they're disappointed when later on down the line, they say, nope. We're just kidding. We can't operate on this or whatever. Patrice, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that like, I think that actually the, the, the ways in which the other doctors sort of like tiptoe around some of the diagnoses or the, the realities of the patient situations is unrealistic. You know, like granted, I think that, um, you know, I, 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 I find Alex's honesty refreshing and maybe I'm giving him too much credit. And like, if I could go back in time before I know that Alex has like this wonderful advent in the later seasons. But like, I think that there's, um, I think it was you, Patrice, that pointed out that like, there's a happy medium between Alex's like aggressive honesty and maybe Izzy's or, or some other doctors like oversimplification of some of the diagnoses. Um, and, and that, that that Meredith is really the one who can deliver sort of an honest truth alongside empathy and and compassion toward her patients. Um, but but I agree with you that like I don't think that Alex is being completely unreasonable in some of these situations, right? When, um, you know, Laurie Metcalf's character is is sort of freaking out, and Alex is like painfully honest with her that's what gets her back in the bed right and this is the second or third episode in a row that we've seen where like his honesty is the thing that actually solves the like immediate patient crisis that and he gets that that, that's sort of at hand and he gets criticized for it and for me i'm always kind of like why like he's like yeah maybe it's harsh but also he's like doing kind of what needs to be done and saying what needs to be said right i actually think that Alex has a talent for reading his patients and giving mm. them the the news that they need to hear in the right way. Like I think back to um, some of the earlier episodes, I think in this season where he deals with K 
kids or he deals yeah. with oh what was that character it was like a an orthodox jewish teen yes yes and so That's he's one of his finer you know, moments yes. yes and so i feel i actually feel like even though the way that he presents to Laurie Metcalf's character is in, in an asshole way, it's kind of probably what she needed. And yeah. I think that he's good at meeting people on their level and giving them the news in the way that they need to receive it. Yeah, he's actually, yeah. Um, you're, that's a really good point. And you guys kind of changed my mind on this because my initial read on his interaction with Burke um, and maybe we'll play a snippet of his monologue here was that, you know, I was watching and I kind of, was like, oh my God, I can't believe he just went at Burke that way. You know, that is his attending. But I think you're right that, um, that I think Alex is actually fairly intuitive. And I think it actually yeah. makes sense when you look at the bones of his relationship with Meredith, that they're, they're the two, the two of them are pretty consistently on good terms and that's certainly mm-hmm. not the case with other characters in Karev at all times. And I, I think that Meredith is similarly intuitive. I don't think she's as aggressive as Alex. Yeah. But but I think we get a, a, we give Meredith a lot of credit for um, being that middle way, right, between like a Yang and an Izzy. And I think I think that you're both correct in that Karev actually has a lot of that same gift. That he can read his patients, he can meet them where they're at, and that's an asset for him, and it's going to continue to be an asset for him as, as the show goes on. Should we talk a little bit about the the Gray family here? Oh, God. Oh, my God, There's yes. so much There's in this so episode. There's so much in this episode. There's a lot here. So let's let's talk a little bit about Molly. I assume her last name is Gray. I don't know her last it's name. Not. It's not. It's Thompson. It's not. It's something else. Thompson. You're so good at this. Thompson. Patrice. Okay. I You're apologize. so detail oriented. Well, she's married to Eric. He's 23 and she's 22. And he's shipping off. Yeah. Okay. I know so let's talk a little. You think I'm too young, but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm really glad. As somebody who got married relatively young, I'm really glad I didn't get married when I was 22. Okay. Oh, okay. So. You were relatively young. You were totally appropriate age to get married. Okay, thank you. I, I appreciate just, I just want to validate <laughs> and support yeah, you right Yeah, I needed now. to validate you yes. and your choices. <laughs> thank you. I was 26, which feels young. No, it's I'm, great. I'm very happily married, but <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't 22. <laughs> I'm glad you okay. weren't 22 either, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a different crowd. Let's just say that. Um, so let's talk about Molly. We can finish up with Andrew and then go into the M&M. Okay. Does that sound good? Yeah. <laughs> so just fuck okay. Denny. All right. Yeah. Molly, let's oh, do sorry. it. Oh, yeah. God. There's nothing um, to talk we about. We don't care. We've moved on. <laughs> Here's the Denny update. He's still alive. He's still a giant sack of dicks. And yeah. He's he is, still alive and Izzy's still a bad doctor. He's dying and horny. That's that's yeah. That, that's right. it. That's so, all you need to know. Just like par for the course. Okay. Yeah. Molly. So, Molly is um, comes into the hospital. She's got a um, she's she's quite pregnant, maybe seven months or so, and she's got a diaphragmatic hernia. Or I'm sorry, her fetus has a diaphragmatic hernia. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Something to that effect. Um, and we find out very quickly that this is Thatcher Gray's daughter with his second wife. So it's Meredith's half sister. Yeah. Can I just say uh, really quickly, yeah, I just want to interrupt you to say that, so yes, the baby has, I was trying to find it in my notes, but uh, the baby has a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and I just want to say that they make mention of the surgery, which involves, like, inserting a balloon 
into like mm-hmm. the baby's like lung cavity or something and that's going to like that's going to expand and contract and help the lungs to grow which i just thought was the coolest shit <laughs> I, I could be really you. wrong on on my description of that surgery, but I, I if I'm remembering correctly, it's like inserting a, that little balloon. And yeah, I just think that's wild. And because this storyline is not actually about Molly and her baby with the congenital defect, it's really about the Gray family tree. We don't get a lot of the surgery talk, and that's too bad because yeah. this one sounded dope. <laughs> well, and I got to tell you, and this is a this is a a, a sidebar um, that that we can cut for the episode, but. Um, Something I know about babies and when they're when they're in utero is that their lungs are the very last thing to develop. Um, and I know this because I have a good friend of mine who was born at like 28 weeks, 29 weeks, like very, very, very young. And, Jesus. Um, you know, yeah. So this is in the late 80s. And one of the issues is when when babies are born that young is that their lungs are not developed. Right. And so you're you're when your lungs don't develop like you, you it's very difficult for you to live, obviously. Um, and she has sort of a crazy story that that most babies before 30 weeks would not live because their lungs were were premature and they could not develop and they created a drug. And we see this actually in some later episodes of Grey's Anatomy where babies, you know, who are born prematurely get the drug and their lungs actually develop. Right. And it's sort of a miracle, right, that it's like a miracle that babies can survive like pre third trimester in any way, shape or form. And this good friend of mine was in the clinical trial for the lung drug, right? That she was born so early. And they were like, hey, like, you know, we can enter in this critical trial. Like, she's really not not a super viable baby, but we can enter her. She got the fucking placebo. Spoiler (gasps) alert. She lived and grew Why her own goddamn lungs. Why didn't we have her on the lungs. show? <laughs> yeah, she she's like Ben. Oh yeah, lungs. she's like Ben in People magazine. Like, there's oh she God. just got married last year, and like I like wept through all of her wedding Ugh. video that was on Facebook because her dad talked like all about how like what it was like to be the father of like a a a, a baby that small and shit. Yeah. Anyway, so. And she also is probably the most positive person I have ever met. And if we ever wanted to do like a guest star on this show, yeah. she would be so down for that shit. And yeah. she's like a, a like delightful human being who like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's, it's a, a very crazy story. But I think that That's as we get into episodes amazing. that explore like clinical trials and experimental drugs, um, she's got like a pretty remarkable story around that. So I hadn't realized that she had the diaphragmatic hernia. Like I'd heard the thing about the balloon but I didn't look into that surgery but lungs are one of the things that like can really cause issues for for late term pregnancies because if lungs don't develop and oftentimes things go wrong with that so huh. I just took us on a little journey that no, I was not expecting thank you to so much for that journey yeah. yes yeah what is your guys's sort of opinion or what were your thoughts on Molly as a character like we see Thatcher we've already seen Thatcher in the show at this point right just a few episodes previous to this um like Thatcher is obviously um one of you I think it was Patrice described him as like deeply squirrely and he's like a very (laughs) uncomfortable character I think that like who's the guy who plays him Jeff Perry yeah his name I think he's very good like I think he like really nails the shit out of this role he's a phenomenal Um, actor yeah he really does a great job um, my question for you guys is that like I'd kind of forgotten about Molly 
Like, I think it's easy Same. to think about Lexi. Ditto. Lexi and sister. I She's forgot there was another sister. the third most important of the Grey sisters. Yes. <laughs> and, like, a deep third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you forgot know? there was a third. Third. Totally. Yes. So, how did, like, what it was sort of your guys's? I don't really remember meeting Molly for the first time, and... I'm curious about what you guys sort of thought of her coming into the hospital at this time and sort of her interaction with with the doctors and with Addison and with Meredith. It's uh, it's so hard because so much of what happens with Molly's storyline is so inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And and so I kept thinking about that watching it this time around, just like, yeah. Jesus Christ, like patient confidentiality, like I, Meredith never should have entered that room. I don't know how she was ever allowed to introduce herself to this patient um molly herself seems like one of the most basic women patients to ever come into seattle grace i mean she's really like pumpkin spice latte basic (laughs) i wouldn't say she's basic (laughs) like that but i think it's clear that they're sort of pitting her as a foil to meredith she's like cheery and happy and well-adjusted and pregnant and she's married yeah like that it's Mm -hmm. clear that that's what they're doing they're like look thatcher and this other woman created a nice happy child yeah 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 and and it definitely seems like um that so so they're creating her as a foil and that's narratively important but because they really make her into a, almost this caricature of like a happy, well-adjusted 22 year old. Mm-hmm. It's really easy then for Meredith to just dismiss her. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really yeah. easy for the audience then to dismiss her in the way that I just did, because it's like, well, Meredith is way more interesting because she has layers of complexity that this person doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I kind of felt bad for Molly because she's, she's so clearly just a narrative prop. And there was never any interest in developing her further, which is fascinating because we plant the seed about Lexi and like, it's clear that the show's going to go somewhere with that. Like they wouldn't have just dropped that, dropped that name for nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And it just feels like at this point, Molly isn't really going anywhere. Um, yeah. Like the mother, yeah. like Molly's mom was probably more interesting in how misguided she was in her attempts to reach out to Meredith and find some kind of common ground with Meredith. I I found that side, that part of the storyline, like a lot more interesting than anything having to do with Molly because Molly, I just, I don't feel like she was meant to be terribly interesting to us. I totally agree. I think that everyone in this episode talking about Ellis should not be fucking talking about Ellis. Right. So like Susan approaches Meredith and is like, you know, your mom broke Thatcher and like he's a good guy and he's a good dad after. And why would you say that? And like, exactly, exactly. And after Meredith has had to sit through Molly talking about her wedding day and her dad, you know, this 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 stranger figure to Meredith has abandoned her and like how how he gave Molly away and like oh. all of those things. Right. Like it's 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 her face during that scene. Oh, during that conversation. It's just such a reminder that Ellen Pompeo is worth every penny. Yes. Well, and Tracy, you <laughs> like, because made, you she made the just, excellent she, point she, that like really, the camera oh. does not leave. Molly is telling this whole story. Right. She's having her own yeah. little monologue in this monologue episode and the camera never leaves Meredith's face. And I, I, I didn't Ugh. notice that because I don't generally pick up on those things. But I, I, 
it's it's like that completely diagnosed the the sadness that I felt in that moment of like oh, oh yeah. I had such a deep bottomless well of empathy for Meredith in that moment because I'm watching her face fall because when she first walks in the in the room and starts talking to Molly she has like a borderline hint of optimism on her face like she's yes. looking at a creature that she's like a little bit excited to meet and her face and body just falls with every word that falls out of Molly's mouth. And it is just heartbreaking. Like, it is so yeah. sad to watch that. And then to, like, later on in the episode have Susan be like, oh, Ellis really fucked things over for us. And, like, and then to have Thatcher talk, or the chief, rather, talk to Thatcher about it is, like, equally frustrating. It's, like, why is everybody talking about Ellis to the exact people who should never have to hear her name from somebody who's not themselves? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the Susan issue is, like, you know, we're going to see more of Susan, and, and that storyline's going to go into some, you know, really interesting places. And I, I like the actress who plays Susan a lot. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I can't think of her name right now. But the the issue with Thatcher and the issue with Susan for me is like, why are you caping for this grown man who abandoned his daughter? Yeah. You know, like, let him speak for himself. He's had ample opportunity to do so. And just just pretty flat out refuses. I mean, he, he, he refuses to talk to Meredith. He makes this half-hearted attempt to find her and finds George instead. And, and, you know, (laughs) and so, you know, I'm sure that a lot of this comes out of, you know, like personal, personal ish or whatever with like absentee fathers, but it's just like, at a certain point you have to take accountability for the fact Mm -hmm. that you're an adult. Your daughter is now an adult, so you can't blame Ellis anymore. And you can't blame your daughter who didn't know you nope. and, and didn't know how to navigate getting to know you. You you were the adult. You are always the parent. It is always your responsibility. It is never your child's responsibility. And it's fucked up that his wife's out here being like, no, he's a good dude. His ex-wife just really did a number on him. Yeah. Well, that was a long time ago. Like, Listeners, you cannot see me, but I am enthusiastically <laughs> nodding my head at everything that Trees is saying. <laughs> Probably because I have my own ish yeah, about yeah, an absentee father, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm just like, there's no excuse. That's all around. Like, bro, there's you're no yeah. excuse. Yeah, you're always, um, you're always the parent. And it just falls flat. It falls so flat that yeah. Susan's like, Thatcher thinks about you often. And you're like, bitch, what am I supposed to do with his thoughts? Right. Exactly. Cool. Where were his thoughts? Is he thinking happy birthday and thinking Merry Christmas and thinking congratulations on getting into your medical program? Like, what what the fuck? What what do you want me to do with your thoughts? That's neat. Yes. Your father really loves you. Cool. What does that mean? Trisha's really upset right now. No, I I think that that's so. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's so accurate. And like, you talk about foils, but like. And Molly is so clearly a foil to Meredith. And Susan is so, in my opinion, heavy-handedly a foil for Ellis. In yes. a way that's like, I actually really like Susan. And like she is like mm-hmm. she is like painfully likable. 
And that to yes. me is like for Grey's Anatomy is like really heavy handed of like, okay, so you like really want me to like this woman. And it's like the taste of a too sweet treat in your mouth of like, I, I, <laughs> I do not want this like white chocolate or whatever the fuck it is, you know? And like, <laughs> yes. and, 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 and like, it's hard to like her when you've asked me as an audience member to side with Meredith, right? Like yep. you want me to feel confused about Thatcher and you want me to develop my own feelings about him. But, like, you cannot ask me to hold space for Susan and also hold space for Meredith at the same time. Like, it's an oil and water situation. And, 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 like, I don't really have, like, I don't really have patience or empathy to give her. And I actually think it's, like, a really beautifully written scene where Meredith is so icy towards somebody who is so warm to her. And I'm just sort of like, yep, like, I'm on Team Meredith here. I know Susan's a good person, but I don't fucking care. Like... (laughs) Goodbye forever. Fucker. Yeah, I hope you die of the hiccups. Like, oh, <laughs> spoiler! Like, spoiler. I know you got to cut that shit, oh, but like, hiccups. man, you know, like, I hope you. But die I think of that that's like the ultimate now. death for her. Of like, you're the anti Ellis. Ellis died of this long tragic disease, and you died of the goddamn hiccups because that's what happens <laughs> right. to people. The who are sweetest too nice. thing that you could yeah, die yeah, from. Yeah. yeah, like how adorable she died of the hiccups. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> She is ultimately too sweet. Like her monologue at the beginning about being a, a like a mom lion or something. Yeah, and she's mother like, like doing the protective thing. protecting her cup. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. I would have vomit. Yeah, it's, it's just rough. too much. Like um, I get it. In a different show, it would be palatable. In this show, it is not. <laughs> and Very true. Like, I tried to kill myself in front of my daughter. <laughs> right. Meredith's like wow, I put my hand on a wow. bomb, and she's like rawr, and it's like you can't exist in the same show. Like go <laughs> be in a spinoff about nice people. This show is about sad people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say I would say that um, one of my frustrations, and and we can either use this as a transition into the next topic or not. I'm just kind of trying to keep track of time here, but. Yeah. One of my frustrations with that was that we got this beautiful scene with Meredith and with um, Molly and, you know, we see Meredith just absolutely shatter in front of the camera. And then, and then we transition into what felt for me like a really flat-footed comedic scene where she tracks down Izzy and Yang who have been, I don't know, pulled into Callie's ortho not- service. Isn't it Yang? No, just Izzy, I think. Oh, yeah, just Izzy and Callie, because yeah. Yang's off becoming a super surgeon, maybe. Yeah, something, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so uh, she gets pulled up into, you know, she finds Izzy, um, and she just starts smashing a cast. A cast. Meredith enters, and she says, I need something to break, or somebody to throw, yeah. or and, and it is funny that she, she smashes for the entirety of the scene, just in the background of the scene, as Izzy and Callie have um, a very passive-aggressive, slash aggressive-aggressive conversation about George. But I just was frustrated because it, it felt flat. It, it didn't feel true to what Meredith would have necessarily needed in that moment. Like, she didn't look angry after that conversation, necessarily, to me. She looked... I don't know, like something else, mm-hmm. just like, like someone who would let herself drown in the sound. Well, <laughs> it was like, it was like fairy boat Meredith. <laughs> I think, uh, I feel like Meredith has sort of two modes of operation of dealing with emotion and that's to like get drunk 
or get angry. <laughs> yeah. And usually it's like she's getting drunk because she's angry. So I actually feel like this tracks <laughs> for her is like <laughs> she really doesn't fair. she doesn't just go like cry into a bowl she of doesn't ice have cream. Emotional regulation. Right. Strategies. She's just like fuck everything. Yes. I'm going to smash shit or I'm going to drink tequila and dance. So I feel, mm-hmm. I felt like that tracked, mm. but it was flat comedically. Like they could have played her smashing yeah. in a very dramatic way and yeah. they didn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, and instead they, they paired it with this thing where Kelly's like, George is great, which is comedic in itself. Yes. So Absolutely. really it works. Absolutely. So, so that kind of brings us into like, I don't know, I guess. I guess sort of the end of the Callie Izzy thing feud. Feud. They for dis- no reason. They dislike each other. Izzy is bizarrely possessive of George, although we haven't really seen why. She just like doesn't think Callie's right for him because Callie's weird and Callie's loud and Callie's annoying. And basically, my conclusion is weird that is Izzy's code for brown racist. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. Izzy Stevens is a racist. You heard it here first, folks. Catherine Heigl, if you care to comment, please call us. We'd love to have you. We would. So so it's kind of resolved because Izzy, I guess, realizes that uh, George is Izzy's McDreamy. George is Callie's McDreamy. Oh, George is Callie's McDreamy. That's right. She's not Izzy's. He's not Izzy's McDreamy yet. Um... (laughs) But he's so terrible with the spoilers today. <laughs> he's Callie's McDreamy, and I just, I really checked out at that point. <laughs> yeah. That's not a sentence Another I can say totally unbelievable monologue from Callie. Her character makes no sense at no. this point. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. No. Zero. This is also the episode, and this will, I think, kind of close out our storylines. This is the opposite. Also, the episode where we get the reveal that Callie lives yeah. in. A storage area of the basement of the hospital. Yep. Because it's more convenient that way when she's on call to smash people's bones. Which is apparently all that Callie does. It's I don't think 100%. we've seen her do surgery. She's just like climbing on top of patients. And surprising them. And then just like insert bone crack noise here. That's it. That's apparently all orthos do, according to Grey's Anatomy. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. I was watching of, um, like, a random episode was on. I was cooking or something, and we had a random episode on. And my husband, who does not really watch Grey's Anatomy, like, now he's, like, familiar with it. But, like, he's not a dedicated, you know, podcasting fan. Uh, Yeah, he doesn't have a podcast about it, sure. (laughs) And, And Callie's, this is, like season 10 or something like that and he looks at me and Callie's like resetting a hip or some shit and he's like god is that all that she does just cracks and breaks and resets like is that all that orthopedic surgeons do because based on this show that is all they do and I was like yep I think that's all they do like I just think I think that's that's what Grace wants you to think that's all that they do because I think to later seasons when Link comes along and he's just a bro who's like, yeah, yeah. let's crack some bones. Yes. Oh my god, and he just looks like a fucking golden retriever, and I hate him so much. Anyway, that's he is a golden a retriever. But I love golden retrievers. And I he's know. a puppy in a better way though than George is a puppy. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. true. That's no, he's true. the good he's kind of puppy. Than... Yeah, <laughs> an attractive puppy, you might say. George is like a baby seal or something. Like I wouldn't <laughs> even give him puppy. Anyway, I digress. Uh, uh. Um, but I think that like. 
Do you guys remember how you felt about Callie living in the hospital at the time? Like, obviously, now we have the context of, like, she's an heiress and has a trust fund and, like, comes from a huge amount of wealth. And also did the Peace Corps. And I have, I don't know, like, I have a lot of, like, very complex feelings about Callie in hindsight now that I know the full arc of her character. Yeah. But living in the hospital, like, even, like, she is not an intern anymore, right? She's the ortho resident. Um, and, and I'm sure that residents don't get paid what they should, right? They certainly don't get paid the level of the attending. But, like, I find it deeply creepy that she lives in the hospital. And I find her sort of, like, her sort of, like, willingness to live in her workplace, like, kind of upsetting. Yeah, I felt like it was a fucking joke. It didn't make sense to me. And once you get her retconned backstory, which happens very quickly Mm -hmm. in season three, Mm -hmm. it makes even less sense that she lives in the bowels of the hospital. Um, And it's like, it's like Callie is just, she's like the frittata of characters. Like they just (laughs) just throw all the shit All the leftover ideas they had in the writer's room, they were like, (laughs) great. Let's give it to this bitch. Um, doesn't work. Truly, honestly. Doesn't work at all. <laughs> They're like, we need someone who is poor. No, that's lame. Yeah. We need someone really rich. But also, they live in the hospital. She can break also, bones. Like, she can cut hair. <laughs> we have to make people all. believe that she's not rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that it's a surprise later? I guess. Oh, it's so weird. It's not good. Um... No. We should probably get to our M and M's. Yeah, let's get into the M and M's. We are yeah. well over time. We did not talk about Andrew. We didn't talk about Andrew, but mostly I'm, it's fine. Andrew was just a storyline to be like Bailey's being mommy tracked, and it's, has that storyline is going to continue. So yeah. that's one of the reasons that I'm okay skipping it because yep. that's going to continue as a conversation, and it feels like a storyline that only exists for that purpose. Yes, yes, that's true. To kick off the mommy tracking storyline. Okay. All right, so teardrop, teardrop ranking. ranking. So we're in our M&Ms, our morbidity and mortality. Teardrop ranking. I'm very curious to know what you all thought of this episode in terms of teardrop ranking. I give it three teardrops. Three teardrops. Three teardrops. Okay. Mostly all three of those sixty percent teardrop. All three of those teardrops were for the one second clip of Lori Metcalf smelling her teen's wow hair. Wow, that's a good uh, yeah. I respect it. I gave it three and a half. Oh, for the monologue, uh, Lori Metcalf's monologue, and also the scene with Meredith Mm -hmm. um, hearing Molly speak about her idyllic childhood. Mm. That really broke me. Yeah. Tough storyline. I think that, um, so Patrice clearly found the average because I gave it two and a half. Patrice, you gave it three and Teresa three and a half. Um, but for all the same reasons, right? Like I feel really badly for cancer mom, um, and feel sad for Meredith, but I also have this sense of like, like tenacity in Meredith in that moment of like, she's really sad. And then she's like, well, I'm just kind of a sad person and that's how my life, you know, she has kind of like a, (laughs) yeah, well, (laughs) Like, it's not a bomb in a chest cavity, so let's just keep on going, you know? So, like, to me, it's like a half-sadness episode, right? If I think of, like, yeah. the very saddest episodes in my mind of this show, this, to me, is, like, half Henry. Henry. We were just watching a... That's the one that we were talking about with Jacob. We were just watching a Henry episode. Oh, 
Oh, fucking my God. love Henry. I can't. I actually can't. I know. We're not talking about Henry right so, now. So we'll sad. get there eventually. Okay. okay. That's like on seven call years from now. room. Any have anybody Nothing. have a? I know we have this. We whisper. all were pretty turned on by the vet. <laughs> Chris O'Donnell for the win. I gotta say, we're all turned on by the vet. Christina, like, even our glimpse of her objectified, weaponized, naked body in her apartment. Like, clearly that woman looks fucking amazing naked. Incredible. Which is just, like, a nice little moment for us to all appreciate that we know that Mm. that's kind of the most we're ever going to get from her Mm -hmm. um, as as a viewer. But that view that McVet gives Meredith, that, 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 like, look that he Mm. gives her with his, like, perfect eyes... Oh my god! And he's it's basically to... the look that says, "I've been waiting for you all my yes. life." Oh my god! Yes. He's. Can I also just say, he's dressed like such a Seattle dude, yes. and it's. I'm annoyed at how turned on I am by mm-hmm. this. <laughs> like he's wearing just like his REI best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can confirm this. I was just in Seattle. He totally runs so trails in the morning, looking, looking and like I'm him. just like, oh, I'm so mad. I'm so mad, but I'm really into it. He's so attractive. What about the uh, what about the song of the week? Some good music this week, actually. Yeah, good episode, just in general. Yeah, but agree. Yeah. Uh, I gave mine to the fear you won't fall, which is Joshua Radin. I just like I have a soft spot in my heart for that song today, mm-hmm. which is AKA the Ellen DeGeneres wedding song. Oh. <laughs> like it's so beautiful, and yeah. his voice just. It's like one of those like soft, you know, folky men's mm-hmm. voices that's just like you're supposed to feel feelings yeah. while you listen to this. Yeah, I, I, I gotta say that like I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for Joshua Radin as like an artist that I listen to a lot in my like very, very late teens. Um, and and it's hard, like you know, it's one of those songs that I hear and I'm sort of like taken back to that. Um, Crazy by Gnarls Barkley was in this episode, though. <laughs> and yes. I was. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. I like, to me, it's like, it's not ironically in this episode, right? This episode aired in 2006. And I was like, holy shit, this song was popular then. And so yes, I had like a moment so of nostalgia around this Gnarls Barkley song. Also, when this song was popular, I had a reoccurring horrifying dream about Gnarls Barkley. And I don't really like to listen to him anymore because of that experience. But nonetheless, <laughs> I gave that my song of the oh, week. so weird. <laughs> It's so weird. I I know. I know. Anyway. I love it. I said I also perked up with Gnarls Barkley. I was like, oh my god, this song. Before I had heard it one million times. Oh god. But I also really like the Ann and Alec um, Mm. song this week. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was great. I thought it was lovely. It was a good montage. Um, Yeah. But I like the Joshua Raiden as well. Um, Death tally wise, I mean, I had Cancer Mom's Inevitable Death. But not... yeah, Lori Metcalf. Yeah, cancer yeah. mom. We all know she's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, but I think... Beatrice. Beatrice. <laughs> I like that we all identify. You know what, Patrice? It doesn't really matter because she's for sure gonna die. <laughs> no, she's already dead. This was two thousand six. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Alex Kareb, "Dude, she's toast." <laughs> yeah, right. Dude, she's toast. But no, but no in episode deaths. No time no. of deaths delivered. Um, did you guys have, I didn't really have a 007. Um, I mean, Izzy spent the entire episode 
either knitting or playing Scrabble instead of doctoring. But like, <gasps> a, I, I go back, I go back to this that that either makes her the double seven or the chief resident. You know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> It's it's a net gain in my opinion that she does not actually practice medicine. So <laughs> that's a great point. I I'm not sure whether it was Patrice or Megan who who asked if uh, does she have a time turner? Time turner. <laughs> yes, I'm literally that was Patrice. just like she just appears in so many scenes. She's like knitting and playing Scrabble. She's knitting and she's in the gallery. She's knitting and she's at lunch. She's also somehow on Callie's service. Like, what the fuck? This bitch has a time turner for real. I it was no, I don't point. think so. But what if, you kept, what if you kept intern hours but didn't actually have to be a doctor? You could do all that shit, right? Yeah, all yeah. you need to do is keep the, octor, do, the hours of a doctor and not actually be a doctor, which is what Izzy yeah, does. Which is what Izzy's doing. So, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Also, I just want to add just for one more second. How is Izzy still Denny's I know. Yeah. Yep. I know. That's it. Where is the attending? Yeah. Okay. Literally I, the first I said no to one... third line of Patrice's notes about Denny every single week are Izzy's a terrible doctor, which has led me <laughs> to the conclusion that that like might be her epitaph is like <laughs> like born on this day died on this day rest in peace she thought izzy b isabel stevens was a terrible doctor <laughs> like yeah. you know. and a racist and a racist uh, that was not my quote <laughs> that's that's on Teresa's tombstone <laughs> isabel stevens was a racist <laughs> Um, I said no one was particularly egregious, but I gave 007 to George because he was so invested in, like, the whole gray family situation and utterly failed in his basic duties as the intern on that case with Addison. So, like, yeah, that's 007 for me. Yeah, I also did not. I didn't have a 007 or a chief resident. I literally Mm. wrote the same thing for both things, which is everyone was okay at their job this week. Not great, but okay. <laughs> it's better than usual for Seattle Grace, honestly. True facts. Who did you have for chief resident, Megan? Um, I gave it to Miranda. I think that um, we didn't we didn't talk about Andrew with the brain tumor, um, but I I think that I gave it to Bailey because um, Derek so obviously botches this conversation. Like he has to have awake brain surgery, and Derek's like, "Do you like sports? Do you have a girlfriend?" And he's like, "Every fucking like truck and oh, yeah. or beer commercial we've ever seen." God. And Miranda's like, "Well, you know," and 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 she kind of comes in, um, in a way that's that's like very classic Doctor Bailey of being able to like see and recognize and read a patient. Um, and they kind of try to couch it in her having hormones and being a mom and things like that, which I think is deeply unfair because I actually think it's very true to character for her that she would have done this a season and a half ago and she would do it 10 seasons into the future. Um, and so I think she like best serves her patient in that moment in a way that like the big hotshot neurosurgeon could not. Um, so, and, and I didn't really like, I kind of had to excuse me, I kind of had to dig for that, right? There wasn't an obvious chief resident for me. But if I think about it in a way of like a patient or a doctor rather best serving their patient, I think she sort of went above and beyond to do that in a in an episode where nobody else really did that. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I thought Bailey was great. She did come in and kind of save Derek's ass there in terms of the 
um, patient relationship side of things. Mm-hmm. I gave chief resident, I went a little bit outside of the lines here, and I gave it to Callie mm-hmm. because she cuts George's hair. Uh, and um, that's important to, to me because the first five mi- lines of my notes were just, no, stop. Is that a wig? How does his hair look like this? <laughs> What about the Karev of the week? Did we have anyone who was deeply committed to being an asshole this week? (laughs) Other Uh, than the teenage daughter. (laughs) I gave it to Thatcher Gray, to be honest. Um, I think it was, like, pretty awful of him to mope around the hospital and, like, low-key stalk Meredith and simultaneously, like, like, promote his happy fucking family um, at the same time. And I thought that was, like, really unfair. And I think that there was, like, a lot of good ways for him to approach the situation with with his other daughter Meredith and he picked like one of the handful of really awful ways to do that um so I think that when I think of like the the crab of the week or the asshole of the week I'm like yeah Thatcher Gray like continued to be like a pretty royal asshole (laughs) yeah yeah I would actually wholeheartedly agree with that (laughs) I also think the fact that it didn't occur to Thatcher that Meredith might be having a hard time until Chief was like, listen, Ellis has Alzheimer's, even though Meredith showed up at his door right, and was like, clearly having a hard time. <laughs> um, I gave the Karev of the Week to Izzy just for being a bitch Same. to Callie for no Same. reason whatsoever. I gave it to Izzy for being a fucking racist. <laughs> Catherine Heigl, again. I don't so care. Sorry. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Call her out. Um, what about the, what about the line of the week? I didn't have a line of the week. (laughs) I just, I wanted to call attention to two lines that made me actually laugh out loud. One was when Karev and Burke are in the operating room. They're working on cancer, mom. They see that the cancer has attached itself to her chest wall or whatever. And Karev just goes, after he's been given a pretty nice fucking compliment by his attending, by Burke. Greg just sees the cancer and goes, dude, she's toast. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just... Dude, she's toast. Oh, it's a lot. And my second line of the week went to, there's this moment where Izzy asks such a stupid question in the cafeteria about Molly. She goes (laughs) to Yang. She goes, so what's she like anyway? And Yang says, uh, I don't know. She's like someone Meredith's related to, but has never met. <laughs> I just, anytime Yang just flat out dismisses Isabel Stevens, it's, it's a good, it's a good moment. Yeah. 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 I what didn't, about, yeah, I didn't have a line of the week. Yeah. Did I say that already? Yeah, you already, yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't cool. hear that. Sorry. I'm three wines deep. Three wines <laughs> Box wine is an empty box wine. Um, what about the medical fact of the week? I feel like we kind of covered this with with Megan and like the discussion of that congenital lung hernia 
I feel like there's a number of things we could have talked about, none of which I researched. But yeah, like, well, and awake I, brain surgery. Yeah. Awake brain surgery. Yes. That's one we could come back to. <laughs> and I think that the episodes. So what I think is sort of interesting to think about with our medical fact of the week is that these episodes are growing increasingly busy all the time. Right? They're building yeah. so much anticipation. We're throwing all of our characters into sort of chaos in various ways. Right? We've got Izzy. We've got Meredith. We've got Christina. We've got George. We've got Alex to a certain extent. And they're all sort of like, not flailing, but they've got sort of like their own dramatic story arcs that we're forced to sort of follow, whether we want to or not. Um, And so I think that the patients, this is a moment in Grey's Anatomy where the patients sort of become secondary to our doctors. Um, And, and so I think that when when we have time and space for medical facts of the week, we we will certainly explore them. But this was, down. this was just not an episode where we could necessarily afford to do that because there was yeah. so much going on. So much going on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We took care of it last week. It's fine. That's yes. true. And the medicine was just not Yeah, it wasn't about. yeah, it wasn't uh, paramount. I will say I just have one thing. It's not a medical fact of the week, but the director of the laparoscopic like surgery lab that Yang and the chief are in says at one point, um, and I quote, um, in in five to ten years, cutting will be virtually obsolete. And I would like to point out that it has been five to ten years. Oh, plus sure. some. It's been 13 years. And just like pretty much everything else that millennials were promised when we were coming of age, mm. that is false. This just promise has not been fulfilled. That guy was full of shit, yep. and someone <laughs> has to say it. Someone's right. got to say it. All right, um, All right. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, we keep forgetting to do this, but in the meantime, you can find us oh, yeah. on some places. We I don't actually don't. want you to find us. That's why we're not telling you. If your name is Catherine Heigl, Heigl, you can find us by emailing <laughs> code grace at we also did not talk about how Burke is now a Trump supporter. I don't want to give any real airtime to that, but I just need our listeners to know that we know that information, we hold that information, and we throw that information in the trash. <laughs> With Isaiah Washington, just the whole handsome person. No, no, just right I will in the go farther trash. than that. Isaiah Washington is a Trump supporter, which we know because of the news, and I would go so far as to say that <laughs> Dr. Burke oh, definitely. is a Trump supporter. Dr. Burke is a Trump supporter. Definitely. Dr. Burke is friends with Ben Carson. Like, yes. they met each other in medical yes. school. Yes. <laughs> yes. For sure. They were probably roommates. They were like buddies. They're still in touch. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They're doing a podcast about Donald Trump somewhere. Fuck. Oh, God. Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. All right. Well, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher, on Acast, probably, and definitely on Podbean, our wonderful host for the pod. If you would like to reach out with questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at codegrays at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at... Everyone is so drunk right now. <laughs> At code <laughs> underscore grays underscore. Push through. <laughs> Edit none of this. You can do it. And uh, and um, that's that's what we've got for you. That's our show. Listen, subscribe, send it along to your friends. We really hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 